When discussing foreign relations, national security, and America's role in the world, conversations tend to drift towards words like might, strength, weapons, sanctions, and capability. What if that clearly narcissistic approach was actually making international matters worse? And what if the better approach was centered in empathy? Would anyone believe it or listen to it? Former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster makes the case for strategic empathy on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Welcome, everyone, to this special podcast of Therefore What. Uh, just thrilled today to be joined by Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor, uh, someone who understands uh, what it takes to be strategic, someone who understands the world in a unique way, uh, and someone who I didn't realize this, General, that uh, you have a Ph.D. in history from North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and now it all makes sense to me. You, you have all the historics in there, so that gives you the strategy for moving forward. Well, I, I don't know about that, boy, Joe. I, I had a great one of my advisors at UNC Chapel Hill was Don Higginbotham, the late Don Higginbotham. What a wonderful person and a great historian of the American Revolution. And when I passed my written exams, he said, congratulations, HR. You now know more history than you will ever know. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> We're going to come back to that. <laughs> that is a uh, that is a great philosophy for all of us uh, in, in so many different places. Uh, well, one of the things we want to hit on the podcast today is uh, is your book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Uh, because the moment I saw that and I started to, to play with the content and the principles, which is what we always do on this show, uh, to, to talk about, you just never hear anyone talk about foreign policy or the military, using words like strategic empathy. <laughs> uh, it's just not in the vocabulary. And so I, I want for our listeners, I want you to really give us a, a good look at what is this whole idea of restoring strategic competence, and then let's drill into where we've been, strategic narcissism, and then uh, finish up with what this thing, strategic empathy, is really all about. Well, hey, hey, thanks, Boyd. And the, the concept of strategic narcissism that I introduce in Battlegrounds is meant to communicate our tendency to view the world only in relation to us and then to assume that what the United States does is decisive to achieving a favorable outcome. And this is a problem. It's a problem not only because it's self-referential, but also because it doesn't consider the agency, the mm. influence, the authorship over the future that the other has. And so this narcissistic view often results in folly based on cognitive traps that we fall into. We mirror image the other. We engage in wishful thinking and, and are subjected to confirmation bias. So the argument for strategic empathy, not to be confused with sympathy, right? Empathy yeah. is really viewing these complex challenges and the opportunities we're facing as well from the perspective of the other and especially uh, rivals and adversaries and, and enemies. 
Uh, I think that's such a a great way to frame all of that because that is what will ultimately enable us to get to that increased uh, competence in terms of how we're dealing with the world, recognizing the agency of others. We're not the center of the universe as much as uh, we like to think that we are. Uh, and again, whether this, that's the country or whether that's the CEO of the business or uh, the mother in the household or the teacher in the classroom, uh, starting to recognize that you are not the center of the universe and, and everyone does have their agency, their ability to act, uh, understanding that changes the dynamic in your decision making. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about that. How does it impact the way you make decisions and develop strategy? Well, I think the way that it impacts the way you make decisions is that it, 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 strategic empathy allows you to identify and then subject to scrutiny the assumptions on which your decisions and your policies and strategies uh, are, are based. And, and when we don't consider the agency of the other, we tend to allow implicit assumptions to underpin what we're doing. Mm. And those implicit assumptions, because they're implicit, they go unchallenged. So, for example, with China, for far, far too long, we assumed that China, having been welcomed into the international order, would play by the rules. And as China prospered, it would liberalize and its economy and liberalize its form of governance. But we weren't empathetic enough. We didn't view China's actions and strategies from their own perspective, and especially the emotions, the aspirations, and the ideology that drives the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. Uh, that that is uh, that is so vital to get that into proper framing. Uh, and you mentioned something the other day when uh, we were doing uh, an event with uh, World Trade Center Utah here in in the state of Utah. Uh, you talked about this idea of a part of the challenges to our foreign policy, particularly over the last decade, it was this kind of resignation that we've kind of retreated from the complex problems uh, of the world uh, because they are that. They're just a little too complex. And it goes back to that strategic narcissism versus instead of having that strategic empathy. Right. I, and Boyd, I think there are some who make the argument, well, gosh, you know, it's so complicated that we view retrenchment or withdrawal from the problems as an unmitigated good. But that, too, is problematic because it is also narcissistic, right? <laughs> right, right. The Middle, East, the, Middle East, the Middle East is a great example of this, right? Because we were over-optimistic, I think, due to, to a, a, a particular form of strategic narcissism in connection with the invasion of Iraq in 2003. I think we need to debate you know, or, or discuss who the heck thought it would be easy. And why did they think <laughs> it would be easy? Uh, and so I, I think that the reaction to that was to see our disengagement from the Middle East is an unmitigated good and, and a view of the Middle East as really just a mess to be avoided. Mm. But of course, you know, just when you think things can't get worse there, they actually can. And they actually can in, in part uh, due to that kind of desire for the U.S. to disengage. And, and we've seen this with, you know, these, these serial episodes of mass homicide uh, that are the Syrian civil war, right. uh, the humanitarian crisis that's created, the strain that's put on not only countries in the region, but, but on Europe as well, the way it's perpetuated threats from jihadist terrorist organizations and empowered Iran across the region. So, so I think you know, we do have agency and influence, but what we need is a realistic appraisal of what we can achieve and how we can do it, obviously, in partnership with other you know, like-minded partners in, in the region and beyond. Yeah, those allies and alliances, I think, is such an interesting leadership concept uh, for the 21st century. Uh, and I want you to, to take us inside a little bit, uh, looking at your time in the White House. 
uh, obviously dealt with a, a host of uh, delicate, difficult, and complex problems and, and issues there. What were some of the lessons that you learned in both taking and leading through that yourself, but also in observing uh, the others that were in the room? Well, you know, I, I think the first thing you have to do, Boyd, in, in any position, and it was a great privilege to serve as National Security Advisor. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a position of extraordinary breadth and, and responsibility. And I think you have to understand what your role is, right? I mean, I, you know, and, and in, in my role, I was there to serve the elected president. And I felt that the best way to do that would be to present the president with multiple options, multiple options that allow the, pre- the president to, to make a choice based on his own agenda and based on a, a full appreciation and discussion of the relative advantages and disadvantages of each course of action in context of what we're trying to achieve, right? The goals and the objectives uh, to understand better, you know, what are the long-term costs and consequences associated with these decisions? What are the risks and how can they be mitigated? And, and I think it's only through that kind of a, an open discussion that the president can get the access to the best analysis and advice, right? I didn't think that I, you know, I was omniscient, right? And nobody is, obviously. It was my job to get the best analysis and to get multiple options in front of the president. And I think when we did that, you know, in the 13 months I was on the job there, I, I think it was successful in producing positive policy outcomes. Mm. And so as you look at uh, both those lessons learned, uh, having been in the room there, looking at these principles that you've not only learned and developed within the, the White House, but within your long career, within your study of history, uh, that gives you such unique perspective. Uh, we're, we're early on in a uh, President Biden administration, uh, still within the first 100 days. Uh, but what do you think that they have done right? What do you think they've done wrong as it relates to these international issues? Well, I think what they've done right so far is they've resisted to a certain extent the tendency of administrations to define their foreign policy, to define their national security strategy, mainly as an opposition to the administration that went before them. And I think I've heard some 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 really unsurprising continuities, which I think is positive in connection with with China. Mm-hmm. I think when you heard when you heard, for example, uh, the new Secretary of State Tony Blinken's testimony, he was quite strong on China. And, and he, he did say that the competitive approach to China, the shift from a policy of cooperation and engagement under those, those flawed assumptions I mentioned to one of transparent competition, he stated that that was positive. He, did, he didn't show any, any tendency to let China off the hook for this horrible campaign of genocidal campaign in Xinjiang or the repression of human freedoms across China and into Hong Kong or its aggression internationally. That was positive. I think also, a little bit more surprisingly, on Iran, when he talked about Iran, he didn't try to decouple Iran's proxy war against us, this four-decade-long proxy war, from the problem of Iran's nuclear uh, program and its missile program. Mm -hmm. That was the fundamental flaw of the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal. So he he said you can't separate those issues. And And he included... Really, some of the the issue, the, the the problems associated with the Iran nuclear deal, and said, "Hey, before anything can happen, Iran has to come back into compliance with the original deal." That was positive. On North Korea, I think so. It was also positive that he that he endorsed the, the approach of maximum pressure to at least test the thesis that Kim Jong Un can be convinced that he's better off without nuclear weapons than he is with them. So I think those were important, you know, elements of, of continuity and, and encouraging. Uh, it remains to be seen what will be done on Afghanistan, because I think there the Biden administration has to reverse 
a disastrous course uh, of the Trump administration uh, in connection with empowering the Taliban, making concessions to the Taliban that puts the Afghan government in really an extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, situation. So I I would say, you know, the jury's out. Basically, it's it's a young administration. You, You asked, okay, what I did maybe agree on was to rush back into flawed international organizations. Hey, you can make it a goal to get back in the World Health Organization, as the Biden administration did. But hey, let's put some conditions on that up front, right? Mm-hmm. That's an, an organization that has been had been subverted by the Chinese Communist Party and, and turned against its purpose. The same with the Human Rights Council. Okay, get back in, but don't get back in unconditionally because there is no prize for membership, Boyd, <laughs> for these organizations. <laughs> these organizations are themselves competitive spaces. Oh, that's uh, that. I'm going to put. I'm going to have that chiseled on my tombstone. There are no, <laughs> no prizes, <laughs> no prizes for right, that. And, and there, is, and there actually is more to life than just showing up. <laughs> yes, that is exactly right. That is exactly right. Oh, hey, uh, so so let's go back to China for just a second. And uh, uh, again, as you look at this new administration, and uh, knowing that China is just a a, a critical issue, so many things, just a broad array of challenges. Uh, Again, both things that we need to challenge them on and things we need to engage them with uh, strategically. You mentioned North Korea as one of those areas where we, we've got to be on the same page with China to, to make that really fly. Uh, but what else does the Biden administration, leaders in Congress, uh, what else do they need to be thinking about uh, or acting on as it relates to China moving forward? Well, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the key areas is, is really the various forms of economic aggression. And this is going to be, I think, one of the most complex and and high-stakes competitions of this century. China continues to apply unfair trade and economic practices in a way that allows it to promote its mercantilist system uh, in a way that that puts us at a significant, us being free market economic systems, at at a significant disadvantage. Uh, This is with the forced transfer and theft of of intellectual property and sensitive technologies. It has to do with state support uh, for Chinese companies in, in a way that profoundly disadvantage international companies uh, uh, companies and our, and our, our workers. Uh, it has a, a lot to do with the application of technologies that gives China an unfair advantage, not only in the emerging data-driven global economy, uh, by, by, for example, being able to control communications infrastructure, being able to, to try to control data standards and Internet privacy standards and so forth, but also a differential advantage militarily uh, and in contested domains such as space and cyberspace. So we have to do two things. I think what we have to do is work together with the other free market economies and liberal-minded democracies around the world and not allow China to take a divide-and-conquer approach. Uh, and then we have, to, we have to compete more effectively um, by making ourselves better as well, making the critical investments in, in, the, in the development of, of technologies that are important to our future because really what we all want, Boyd, is right. We want our children or our grandchildren to have the same opportunities we had. Yeah. Uh, and I think what, what China is doing is, is promoting its model in a way that will put our children and grandchildren at, at a severe disadvantage. I think that's uh, that's so important. And uh, give us just a, a little more on uh, on the technology side of things. You mentioned technology as a critical piece of all of this. In your book, you talk extensively uh, about the importance of technology and innovation uh, as really a mindset and as a governing philosophy uh, that's really critical to maintaining America's leading role in the world. Right. I think one way to think about this, Boyd, is how do we take what China sees as our competitive disadvantages 
and turn those into our greatest strengths, right? Mm. So they don't have, we don't have a centrally directed big program like China does with military civil fusion is one of the programs or made in China 2025. What we have is a very decentralized entrepreneurial creative system. But really what China is able to do is, is to use mainly foreign capital, largely U.S. capital, to, to fund their efforts to gain this differential advantage over us. So, hey, let's, let's not be our own worst enemy here. Let's invest in, in U.S. companies that are developing these technologies and provide them with the capital that they need to pursue the, these ideas and translate these ideas into economic growth, translate these ideas into, into maintaining our competitive advantage from a defense perspective. And so, you know, I think that, that a way to think about this is, is how do we take what China sees as our, as, our, as our disadvantages and turn them into our greatest strengths? A lot of this has to do with regulation, for example. China is winning uh, in, in, in digital finance, uh, for, for example, uh, in large measure because our regulations uh, you know, tend to constrain uh, U.S. entrepreneurs. Uh, so, so I think we have to take a holistic approach to this and, and to, to do it from a, a perspective of competition. How do we make ourselves more competitive? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so vital to uh, to so many areas, <laughs> not just our uh, national security, but to so many other components in our in our society. Therefore, what? Uh, well, General McMaster, as we come down the the home stretch here, uh, the program, of course, is therefore what. So I always ask the therefore what question, uh, and I want to do it a little different today. Uh, just the the more I uh, have had the opportunity to interact with you and and listen and and really get the essence uh, of your leadership approach to things, uh, I want you to give me a, a therefore what based on your experience in the military, your knowledge of history. You've learned a lot of leadership lessons from a lot of different places and a lot of different people, uh, many whom you've never met, <laughs> who who lived long before you showed up. Uh, but what are the leadership principles uh, that you would hope people would walk away from any conversation about looking at the United States of America and your book, Battlegrounds, uh, or looking at our place in the world? Uh, what are those leadership principles that you've gleaned from all of these different places that we all should be applying today? Well, you know, boy, I think the study of history is an exercise in humility, right? Because what, what, what that allows you to understand is you're not the first uh, to encounter the problems you're encountering as a leader. You can learn from the experiences of others and apply them. You can learn really what, what's been effective and what's from what's been, especially maybe what's been ineffective uh, in, in examples of, of leadership. I think, I think studying effective leaders and how they've overcome, you know, daunting problems and, and circumstances is really leaders who were selfless, who understood this. It wasn't about them. It was about the mission. It was about those in their charge. They understood you know, what their base motivation was, and it was a base motivation of service rather than self-aggrandizement. And, and so I, I think that what we can learn from today, especially as we face this kind of quadruple crisis, right, of, of a pandemic, of a recession associated with the pandemic, the, the social divisions laid bare by you know, George Floyd's murder and the, and the aftermath and the related concerns of inequality of opportunity and unequal treatment under the law. And then this, this horrible partisan political season that we're still in, culminating on the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. Okay, enough, right? What we need is we need leaders to step forward, leaders who who are, are good at, at, at communicating to to all Americans what we have in common. And to reinforce our confidence, rebuild our confidence 
in our common identity as Americans. You know, Boyd, I, I think that that if we just gave equal time to, to what we agree on before we start talking about what we disagree on, we can get a lot done in, in our country. And so, you know, I, I argue in the book for strategic empathy, you know, oriented really on problems associated with foreign policy and national security. But I think we have to be careful not to lose our ability to empathize with one another. Mm. And I think it's going to take leadership to break this destructive interaction that we see these days between, you know, identity politics and what some people call wokeism, right? And how that interacts with bigotry and and, and racism on the other end of the spectrum. And I think what we see are these centripetal forces that are created by these extremes. I think the vast majority of Americans are much less polarized than some of our political elites uh, and the media, for example. So, I mean, I think this great podcast that you host, other venues have to be places where we have meaningful, respectful, civil discussions about the, the challenges we face in recognition, right, that our republic never was, was meant to be perfect from the beginning. Our, our founders realized that our republic would require constant nurturing. And we can do this if we do it together and if we and, and if we, we we're all determined, right, no matter what political background you are, what social background you are, what religion you are, what skin color you are. I mean, it shouldn't matter. Right. What we all want is a, is a better future for generations to come. Ah, fantastic. And uh, to all of our listeners on Therefore What, uh, I just want you to pause for a minute. Listen to the echo of what you just heard, because that, my friends, is what leadership sounds like. That is what leadership looks like, and that is what leadership acts like. Uh, the book is Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. H.R. Uh, McMaster, former National Security Advisor. Uh, sir, we appreciate your time, your insight, and the ultimate, therefore, what answer. Uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Hey, Boyd, thanks for the privilege of being with you and being with your listeners. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What? Therefore What?